with you here this morning. Uh, special welcome to those of you as well who are joining in uh, at home, online. Grateful to be able to gather with you also uh, in this way. Uh, thrilled, always a pleasure to get to share God's word with you. This is the second weekend in our summer series that we've titled The Extraordinary Nobodies, in which we're looking at the lives and the stories of some of the Bible's lesser known characters. Now, last weekend, if you were here with us, uh, Pastor Jeremy kicked everything off for us, and he started by describing how he felt he got the bottom of the barrel in the last selection for the character in the message. When Greg sends out the, the preaching responsibilities, we kind of respond with the ones that we'd be willing to take, and he was the last to get his in. Now, I'll be honest, I was the first to get my list in. I jumped in really quick. As soon as Greg sent that email, I grabbed two that I thought, uh, you know, were great stories, good summer moments, had great narratives behind them, would be fun to, to teach on, would be engaging, and generally pretty easy to go along with. And so I've got this weekend, I've got next weekend. So first on the list for this weekend was Josiah. Now, I've read the story of Josiah before. Lots of you probably have, but I've never taught the story of Josiah. But it seemed compelling, right? It's an eight-year-old kid who was made king of Israel who led the people back uh, towards the covenant of God that had been long since forgotten. It sounded like a really great summer message filled with youthful hope and optimism, that was until I started to really sit in the story and worked through all of the specific details of the story, and I discovered how graphic the story was and how the pathway back to Yahweh was forged with a lot of bloodshed and the scattering of bones. So my message title for this weekend that I gave Greg was, Josiah, you've got to be kidding me. When in reality, it should have more clearly been Josiah, the kid who went nuclear on all the false gods and their leaders. Regardless, I'm a really firm believer in what Paul told his young disciple Timothy and that all scripture is inspired by God and it's helpful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training for righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so every weekend, regardless of the passage, I believe that God has something for us because this book, the scriptures, our Bible, thanks to God's spirit, is alive. It's alive and it ministers directly to our hearts and minds if we'll allow it to do so. And so we're going to jump right in. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to have it open to the book of 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. Now, we don't know who wrote the book of 2 Kings, First and 2 Kings. They used to be one book, but they were split, divided into two books. Lots of people speculate. Most kind of agree that it was probably Jeremiah. He was ministering at the time. He was writing. Some of the writings look similar. So lots will say it was Jeremiah. I'm just going to assume this morning it's Jeremiah. So if I refer to Jeremiah says this, that's what I mean. But 2 Kings chapter 22, here's where we pick up. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah, and she was born, or she was from, Bozkath. He did what was right in the Lord's sight and walked in all of the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn to the right or the left. Now, it became 
it became really apparent to me early on that as cool as it sounded to have a kid become king at eight years old, leading the entire nation of Judah to reformation that I was nearsighted in my recollection of the story. Now, clearly, the people did not allow for kids who were barely sleeping through the night without wetting their beds to be kings of the nations. Now, just one chapter before this, in 2 Kings chapter 21, we read about a group of leaders who are referred to as the people of the land. That's probably what your translation says. Or in the CSB, they call it the common people. And the context here, just a chapter before, is that the king who ruled before Josiah, his father, was named Amon, he followed the horrendous reign of his father, King Manasseh, more on him to come, but Amon was killed in his own home by his servants who conspired against him. The author of Kings recorded this, it says, the common people killed all who had conspired against King Amon, and they made his son Josiah king in his place. So most scholars agree that, that that description, that people, the common people, or as some translation call it again, the, the people of the land were this surrounding, you know, panel of leadership, the core that worked alongside of the kings, meaning that while Josiah was named king at eight years old, he doesn't actually start ruling like a king until the ages of 18 to 20. However, what is important in these first few verses is what's said about Josiah. Have a look at them again. It's recorded. He did what was right in the Lord's sight and walked in all the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn to the right or to the left. The author wants us to understand Josiah was someone different. He was someone special early on. The language that's used here that he didn't turn from the right or to the left is actually pulled directly from the book of Deuteronomy, which is a book that's really important to this narrative, so stay tuned for that. Josiah was an important character in the story of Israel, namely in the nation of, of Judah. See, the, the nation of Israel had been divided. Israel had become the northern kingdom, and Judah had become the southern kingdom. Think of it as, as two provinces who shared one central place of worship in the city of Jerusalem. Now, at this point in history, the people of the northern kingdom of, of Israel have already been attacked by the Assyrians, and they've already been forced into exile. And as comfortable as the people of Judah to the south may be at this point, God has made it clear that their turn is also coming. In the midst of all this as well, some 300 years before Josiah reigned, a prophecy was given of a boy who would rise up to become a great king. Look at 1 Kings chapter 12. It says, A man of God came, however, from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, where Jeroboam was standing beside the altar to burn incense. The man of God cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, Altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son will be born to the house of David named Josiah, and he will sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who are burning incense on you. Human bones will be burned on you. Before Josiah took the throne, the book of 2 Chronicles, which actually tells the same story as, as Chronicles and, and, and Kings, they tell the same story just by, by different people. Think of it like the gospel accounts. Most people think Chronicles was written by Ezra, but this is what Ezra potentially has to say about Josiah's early days. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor David, and in the 12th year, he began to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem 
of the high places. So Josiah was destined, destined for hundreds of years to be the one who would reform the mess that the people of Israel had found themselves within. But even before he officially started making the calls as king, he was pursuing God, something that his great-grandfather Hezekiah had done, but that his grandfather and his father definitely had not been doing. He was seeking after the Lord. So I want to paint a little bit of the context for us that will help us to understand what Judah was like when Josiah took the throne. As I mentioned, Josiah had a great-grandfather named Hezekiah. After a line of ungodly rulers, Hezekiah led the people back toward the heart of the father. And this is what we find recorded in 2 Kings 18 of Hezekiah. It says, Hezekiah relied on the Lord God of Israel. Not one of the kings of Judah was like him, either before him or after him. He remained faithful to the Lord and did not turn from following him, but kept the commands of the Lord, that kept the commands the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him. And wherever he went, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its borders from watchtower to fortified city. However, one generation after him, his son Manasseh had very different plans and motives as a leader. And he led the people of Israel in a very different direction. So here's a snapshot of King Manasseh's reign. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, imitating the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. He built the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed and reestablished the altars of Baal. He made an Asherah as King Ahab of Israel had done. He also bowed and worshipped to all the stars in the sky and served them. He built altars in the Lord's temple where the Lord had said, Jerusalem is where I'll put my name. He built altars to all the stars in the sky in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. He sacrificed his son in the fire. He practiced witchcraft and divination and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did a huge amount of evil in the Lord's sight, angering him. The author, again, presumably Jeremiah, goes as far as to describe that Manasseh even set up a carved image of Asherah, this lowercase god of the region, inside the very temple of God itself. Now, this was a big no-no. God's very first command to the people of Israel was that he was to be their only God. There were to be no other gods. And the fact that Manasseh would erect a statue to worship a different God in the very place where God said his name would be established forever is big bad. And so, as was recorded, Manasseh caused them to stray so that they did worse evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. And that's pretty telling. And after Manasseh died, his son Amon took the throne, albeit just for a really short two-year rule. But here's what we have recorded about his short time on the throne. It says, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his father Manasseh had done. He walked in all the ways his father had walked. He served the idols his father had served, and he bowed and worshiped to them. He abandoned the Lord God of his ancestors and did not walk in the ways the Lord. Okay, 
We're all caught up. And after Amon's servants killed him in his own home, Josiah was named the new king at eight years old. And at about 16, he started down a very different path than his father and his grandfather had walked, one of faithfulness. He did not turn to the right nor to the left. And when he became the age of majority between 18 and 20, he got to work. And the very first task he had as king was to rebuild the temple and have it refreshed. Here's what's recorded. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent the court secretary, Shaphan, son of Aziliah, son of Meshulam, to the Lord's temple, saying, go up to the high priest Hilkiah so that he may total up the silver brought into the Lord's temple, the silver the doorkeepers have collected from the temple. It's to be given to those who are doing the work, those who oversee the Lord's temple. They, in turn, are to give it to the workmen in the Lord's temple to repair the damage. They're to give it to the carpenters, builders, masons, to buy timber and quarried stone to repair the temple. Now, the temple renewal program isn't something that was unique to Josiah. Many of the kings undertook this, you know, program. They, he brought up specifically this offering from the people to pay the workers in an attempt to expedite the renovation. But it's what happened while the renovation that was taking place that made this particular story so unique. See, while they were working in and through the temple, the high priest Hilkiah stumbled across something that clearly had been stuck and tucked away somewhere that it shouldn't have been. Here's what we have, 2 Kings 22, verse 8. The high priest Hilkiah told the court secretary, Shaphan, I found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. And he gave the book to Shaphan who read it. Now, most scholars are in agreement that, that the most likely book of the law that was found was the scroll of Deuteronomy. The reason is because of all the Deuteronomic language that's found in and through this section, and also the action that follows from finding this scroll and its alignment with the Deuteronomy and the, and the call of the people towards um, the covenant. Now, after Moses wrote Deuteronomy in chapter 31, of said book, Moses was instructed to do this. God said, take this book of the law and place it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God so that it may remain there as a witness against you. So again, what several scholars also agree is that most likely what happened was when Manasseh was in control and ruling in the way he was ruling, he had that scroll removed from the ark because he wanted nothing to do with said witness, because it was in, in direct conflict with the way that he was running the kingdom and perverting the ancient monotheistic religion. And so the scroll then, presumably, was taken from its rightful place, and it was tucked into a corner somewhere, and it's uncovered during the renovation. The high priest reads the scroll to Josiah's court secretary, who then brings the scroll back to the king, and after reporting on the status of the renovation, he reads the scroll to the king as well. And then have a look at how Josiah responded to hearing the words of the scroll being read to him. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes, and then he commanded the priest Hilkiah and a group of challenging to pronounce named individuals, who I won't even try this morning. He said, go and inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all of Judah about the words in this book that has been found. 
For great is the Lord's wrath that is kindled against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words of this book in order to do everything written about us. And so what I find really quite interesting about this section is that it's clear that Josiah has never heard this before. He's never heard these words before. This scroll, this book is is brand new to him. They'd never been transferred or, or passed along from the generation before him, presumably because of his grandfather. So in one generation, the span of one generation, the faith of an entire family can be completely lost and forgotten. This should be a huge, huge call and an important reminder to those of us who find ourselves as parents in this church, but also to us as a church. Now, Josiah's first response is to mourn. That's the whole tearing of the clothes part. He's grieving over what he's just read and heard, of the covenant between God and his people, which clearly they have not been upholding their end of the agreement. And so he mourns, but then he also springs right into action. He sends his court assistants to the prophets. He wants to verify, he wants them to verify, is the word that they found, is it true? And what's going to happen now due to their nation's folly? And is there even anything that they can do about it? And in verses 14 to 20, we have the assistants in the company of Huldah, the prophetess of Jerusalem. That's right. A woman used to bring the word of the Lord to the nation all the way back to the book of Kings. Just had to add that. But they came looking for a word of confirmation from Huldah, and she gives them more than they had bargained for. As She describes in detail that What the Lord said is going to happen is going to happen, and things are about to get from bad to worse. She says this, speaking for the Lord, I'm about to bring disaster on this place and on its inhabitants, fulfilling all the words of the book that the king of Judah had read. Because they have abandoned me and burned incense to other gods in order to anger me with all the work of their hands, my wrath will be kindled against this place. And it will not be quenched. She mentions also that because Josiah sought to actually give a rip about all of this, that his fate was actually going to be different. Going on, because your heart was tender, she's speaking of Josiah, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse. And because you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I myself have heard. This is the Lord's declaration. Therefore, I will indeed gather you to your ancestors and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes will not see all the disaster that I am bringing to this place. So when the assistants, the whole group now, returns back to Josiah and tells him, yeah, it's true, and here's the the word of the prophets, he decided that the first thing necessary was to gather up all of the people, everyone, and head to the temple, and there he renews the covenant between them and the Lord. Now, covenants in the simplest way I can describe or explain them were promises and commitments to one another. When I do weddings with couples, I always remind them that they're not signing a contract, but they're making a covenant. It's a relationship between two partners who make a binding promise to one another to commit to working together to reach a common goal. Often, these covenants were accompanied by oaths 
and by signs and by ceremonies. The most graphic probably being the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, where Abraham actually cuts three animals in half and lays them in a valley, and then both Abraham and God walk between the torn carcasses with the visual being, if either, if either of us doesn't uphold our end of the agreement, may our fate be like these animals. And so the Mosaic covenant, or the covenant that God made between God and the people with Moses, found in Exodus 19, is actually reinstated. It's re-upped in the book of Deuteronomy, which again is the scroll that Josiah discovers and reads. And so Josiah's first action was, we've got to renew the covenant. We've got to re-up. Here's what's recorded. So the king sent messengers, and they gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. Then the king went to the Lord's temple with all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, as well as the priests and the prophets, all the people from the youngest to oldest. He read in their hearing all of the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. Next, the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant in the Lord's presence to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, his decrees, and his statutes with all of his heart and with all of his soul in order to carry out the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And the people agreed to the covenant. So they have a ceremony. And they collectively, as a group, recommit to the covenant. And then what follows is the really hard-to-read stuff. From verse 4 all the way to verse 20, we have Josiah then moving throughout all of the kingdom completely and absolutely desecrating every single statue, memorial, altar, everything and anything that was pointing to any of the lowercase g gods that were being worshipped by the people thanks to the work of his great-grandfather Manasseh. And it's really, really graphic. And so I'm going to spare you the details because it doesn't feel like summer fun. Because it's not just the places or the locations of worship that were destroyed, it's the leaders of those places who were also slaughtered as well. We also see several examples of human bones being dug up and scattered in the areas. And so just so you kind of understand what was happening there for, for Jewish people, contact with a dead person or bones was absolutely forbidden. And so what Josiah is trying to do is he's trying to make these places absolutely in inhabitable, places so unclean that no self-respecting Israelite would ever go there again. But Josiah does a full reboot, a purge of all that was ungodly in the nation. And I'd encourage you to read the details of it on your own to get the full weight and gravity of the situation later. But for Josiah, this wasn't something to wait on, nor something to ignore or just have marginal, apathetic interest in. Because the book of Deuteronomy, especially chapter 28, it painted a clear picture of what would happen to the people of Israel if they didn't uphold their end of the covenant, which they clearly were not. And in fact, in many ways, they were living in direct opposition of what they had promised the Lord. And so action had to be taken, and it was. Ezra summarizes it like this. So Josiah removed everything that was detestable from all the lands belonging to the Israelites. And he required all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God. And throughout his reign, they did not turn aside from following the Lord, the God of their ancestors. This is, this is a really profound statement. That as a result of the work and faithfulness of this teenage king, 
that the whole nation of Israel changed its trajectory of worship and adoration to Yahweh. He reformed an entire nation of people because he had an authentic encounter with the Lord and his word. And the last thing Josiah does as part of all of this reform is he leads the nation of Israel, or Judah, in a Passover celebration. Here's what it says. The king commanded all of the people, observe the Passover of the Lord your God as written in the book of the covenant. And then we see this. No such Passover had ever been observed from the time of the judges who judged Israel through the entire time of the kings of Israel and Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, the Lord's Passover was observed in Jerusalem. And so what made this Passover special and why it's mentioned that no Passover had happened like it or would happen like it was the fact that the entire nation actually came together. They gathered in one place to participate as one body. Now, Passover was a celebration that was typically done by families and really close-knit communities. It'd be like us celebrating Christmas as one entire country all together instead of just individually in our homes as families. Josiah gathers everyone up. They all need to be present. It was a recommitment, a, a, un, a uniting as a community around the common goal of seeking the Lord and walking in his promises. And Passover was a, a unique celebration. It was a celebration or it was a remembering of God's protection of the people of Israel on their journey through the exodus, of their being set free from captivity. And the primary focus of it was to remember the night that the angel of death passed over, get it, pass over, but passed over the people of Israel and spared their firstborn sons while subsequently taking the lives of the Egyptians, their sons. And so they would spread blood on their doorpost as a sign of remembering that God took care of them, that God protected them, and ultimately set them all free. It was a yearning every year to live into that promise of being spared by God's judgment today just like he did back then. That's why they celebrate. So Josiah was a stud. He rose to the occasion. He brought the people back to the Lord. And this was the last description we have recorded of him. It says, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and all his soul and with all of his strength according to all the law of Moses. And no one like him arose after him. He did it. Upon hearing the word of the Lord, he responded to the Shema. That's the heart, soul, strength section here. He was actually living into this ancient Jewish prayer, one that was taught from every parent to every child of God's unique singularity in a profound way. Here's how Deuteronomy records it. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up, bind them on you as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on your doorposts of your house and on your city gates. Josiah didn't have the benefit of this being passed on to him, but it's described very clearly regardless of the home he grew up in. There'd never been a king like him, one who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and all of his soul, and all of his strength. 
But here's where the story sadly ends. Chapter 2 or 23, verse 26. In spite of all that, the Lord did not turn from his fury of intense burning anger, which burned against Judah because of all the affronts with which Manasseh had angered him. For the Lord had said, I will also remove Judah from my presence just as I removed Israel. I will reject this city, Jerusalem, that I have chosen and the temple about which I said my name will be there. Probably not what you expected on a summer-long weekend message, right? Everything that he did, every renewal, every promise, every reform, as good as they were, couldn't change the Lord's mind. Now, I want to be clear It's not that the Lord smote the people. Instead, what the Lord did is he lifted his hand of protection from the people. He he gave the people what they wanted. Because all through the rule of the previous kings, they said, we don't want you, we want all of these other gods. We want all of these and, and not you. We believe in these things, we'll worship these things, not you. And so the Lord finally says, fine, have them. Let's see how that goes for you. And so he lifts his hand of protection from them. And subsequently, some 10 years after Josiah's death, Judah falls to Babylon. This nation rises up. God raises his hand of protection from Israel and allowed Judah to be captured and sent into captivity. Josiah himself also didn't really end the way that it was maybe prophesied by Huldah. This is what we have recorded. During his reign, Pharaoh, Necho king of Egypt, marched up to help the king of Assyria at the Euphrates River. King Josiah went to confront him at Megiddo, and Necho saw him and killed him. From Megiddo, his servants carried his dead body in a chariot, brought him into Jerusalem, and buried him in his own tomb. And then the common people, there it is again, took Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, anointed him and made him king in place of their father. So the common people take leadership and transfer leadership over to Josiah's son to be king. But Josiah was supposed to be gathered into the grave in peace. That was what was prophesied. That's what Huldah said, that therefore indeed will gather you to your ancestors and you'll be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes will not see all of the disaster that I'm bringing to this But I suppose it actually kind of did come true. The death at the hand of Necho was probably a more peaceful way to go than the subsequent invasion and captivity of Babylon. And we do get to see that Josiah did bring back to his family his body to lay rest in his tomb. But that's the story of Josiah. Now, three quick observations that I want to make as I land the plane here. The first one is this, never underestimate the potential of a young person. See, we believe deeply around here in ministry to kids and teenagers. You heard Jamie's heart for this. We, we believe deeply in this, not because we think that these kids are, are the church of tomorrow, but we actually believe that they are the church of today. And so as a church, we need to continue to innovate and strive to help our young people find their place and their role in our church now. 
And this isn't new to us in in the slightest, but this is a, a radical recommitment to our whole origin story as a church. Our church began as a ministry to kids out here in the county. So never underestimate the potential of a young person. Secondly, we've got to consider the cost that our actions will have that often will last well beyond just us. For me, this is the tragedy of, of the story, that despite all of his best efforts and his, his humble attempt at recommitting the entire nation to the Lord, that they were just still too far gone. And it was all too little too late. Now, I want to give us some hope, right? Because the rest of the story still continues on. And, and what we celebrated today here in communion is a, a reflection of the new covenant. See, this, this story, this book is found in the Old Testament. Synonymous to that word testament is, is covenant. It's the old covenant. But God established powerfully a new covenant through the work of Christ and his sacrifice, his death and resurrection. And so what we celebrated, what we remembered today is the free gift that's available to each and every one of us that reminds us that we'll never be too far gone and we're never too far from the grace and love of Jesus and our Father. But there's still the worldly, earthly consequences that that we live with, right? We get this. We know that, that though there's victory that's coming, we still live in brokenness and mess. And so we need to consider the gravity of our actions beyond just the immediate gratification that we might get for them. What happens when our, our brokenness and our own selfish decisions lead to a point of, of maybe no turning back, to a place where it would actually be unwise and maybe even unloving of God to not allow us to experience the painful earthly consequences of our choices? Again, that's not to guilt you or to put fear into you in the slightest, but to remind you that what you do, what you you do has impact, and that impact often will last far beyond just you. And finally, I'd love for you to consider, when was the last time that, that you had an encounter with the person and the word of the Lord that was so personal, so powerful, so radical that it led to the kind of transformation and commitment that we saw in King Josiah. I mean, Josiah purged everything and anything that was getting in the way of both himself and his people from living into the promises of God. It was a seismic reformation. There was no time to waste or spare. It needed to be done and done quickly. And I wonder what parts of our story today might need some of that same renewal and reformation also with the same urgency and the same commitment. You heard Jamie talk about this is what we're about here. We long for your story not to just end here with this one hour on Sunday, but that it would lead to your becoming a deeply formed and rooted follower of Christ, that our encounters with the living God would lead to deep and transforming power in ourselves, in our homes, in our families, and in our community. That's what we're doing here. And so in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask the Lord to just reveal to us the places in our lives that we need to have renewal, the places in our lives that that could use some reforming. And I'm going to trust that the Lord's going to bring those to your minds individually and uniquely. After I've done praying, there's there's a team of... of, 
individuals who are going to come down to the front. And they come every time we serve communion. They have a green lanyard on. It's our prayer team. They're going to be here, and they would love nothing more than to sit with you and pray with you and pray for you. And so I'd encourage you, if you sense that the Lord is moving and he's, and he's calling you towards something new, something fresh, to bring that and to share that with someone who, who might be able to carry that with you and alongside of you. So they'll be here available for that, but I encourage you to take advantage of that. Come and find one of us. We'd love to pray with you. Or, or don't rush out of here. Don't waste a moment that the Lord might be speaking into your heart, into your life, even if it's just being still for a moment. But would you join me as we pray? God, I am I'm humbled by your... I'm humbled by your kindness. And I know that's confusing in the midst of the story I just read, but I'm, I'm reminded of it in what we celebrated earlier in the service. Regardless of, of the mess we made, while we were still sinners... You came and you died for us. It's not something that we can earn. It's not something that we deserve, but it's something that you freely and profoundly have given to us. And so I pray that we would cling uh, to that truth and to that certainty today, that we are yours, that our identity is secure in you as, as your beloved sons and daughters. And if we ever struggle to see that or believe that, help us to look to the cross to be reminded. But Jesus, we don't want to take um, that free gift for granted because it costs you a lot. And so Jesus, I pray that we would have the, the urgency and the desire for change and transformation and renewal in our lives that, that we see in this ancient story. Help us to not be satisfied with just going through the motions of, of a church service like this, but, but stir in our hearts a yearning and a desire, a hunger and a thirst for more, to be transformed by you into your likeness. And so I pray for each of us, myself included, Jesus, that you would bring to mind, bring to heart the, the places, the activities, the relationships, the things that that we know that we can see are actually getting in the way of us becoming deeply rooted followers of you. Help us to see those. Would you bring those to our hearts and our minds? Even in this moment right now, Jesus, would you help us to see what's distracting us from you? What's getting in the way of us pursuing you? Jesus, you, you long for more. You long for us to step into the life that, that you've destined for us. And we really do believe that, that our lives will be best lived when your teachings are taken seriously. And so, Jesus, I pray that you'd give us real, honest next steps of how to overcome some of the things that are, that are holding us back, that are getting in the way of us being able to, to run the race, as the author of Hebrews says. Help us to throw off all that entangles and is holding us back. Help us to know what we need to do, what conversations we need to have, what things we need to implement in our lives, relationships we need to cut out. Help us to see that. And remind us that you do this work so gently and carefully and intimately with us and for us and through us. 
So thank you for that, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for being here with us, church. Uh, we look forward to gathering with you again next week. Again, want to remind you, we have a team that will be down here and available. They'd love nothing more than to pray with you. God bless you. And have a great rest of your weekend.